All right, you can open your Bibles to uh, Genesis 15, uh, page 7 in our Pew Bibles as we continue our study together in the life of Abraham, looking at how this, uh, this flawed, imperfect, at times outright anti-hero can lead us into a deeper love of God as we see the even deeper love of God for us. And today's passage is, uh, is probably the most startling display of the unmerited, accepts all costs, demands no payment grace of God in the entire Old Testament. Grace that if we could believe this morning will change everything. So with your Bibles open, follow as I read Genesis 15, starting in verse 1. It says, And after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, you've given me no children, so this servant of my household will have to be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, no, this man won't be your heir, but a son who is of your own flesh and blood, he will be your heir. And he took Abram outside and said, look up at the stars and count them if you can. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. God also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land, to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I shall gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought him all these, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite of each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. And as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and that they will be enslaved and ill-treated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, you will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried in a good old age. In the fourth generations, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites 
has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking pot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land, from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Uh, how, how can I know? How can I know that this is true? We've asked that countless times before, haven't we? Whether it be with small things, how can I know this car is really as good as this used car salesman is trying to convince me it is? How can I know this preschool uh, is really as good as my friends say it is? Maybe with big things. How can I know this move uh, is best for our family? How can I know this person is who I should marry? Now, we often need that little extra bit of reassurance. I mean, it's the reason things like Yelp exist. Because I, if I'm being honest, if you recommend a restaurant to Becca and I, and we are, we are going to invest in a babysitter, drinks, entrees, and a dessert, I have got to know, it's not going to be a complete flop, that this is going to be worth our money here. I mean, we got two toddlers at home. The, the stakes on a date night could not be higher right now for us. How can we know? Uh, it's a question that peaks in tension when we're not asking it about cars or who to marry, but God. How can we know? How can we be sure that God will do what he's promised he'll do? Well, for Abram in Genesis 15, that was the question on his mind. So he says in verse 8, how can I know? How can I know that God will come through for me? Abram, at this point, he's 80 years old. He has no home and no children, meaning in that day he had nothing. He's an elderly man wandering around from place to place, all on a promise that through him, God was going to do something world-changing. That through this childless man in the last inning of his life, God is going to bless the world. Abram had bet everything on this. And now he's starting to ask, okay, God, how can I know? How can I know you'll do what you've said you'll do? It's a question we've all thought. But one that I think a lot of us maybe feel a little uneasy to admit to. I mean, gosh, can Abraham really be doing this? Can he really be questioning God right now? But as this story shows us, it's a question that until we ask... We will always 
have a simplistic view of life and a thin understanding of God's love. And so with your Bibles open, let's look at this passage together and let's see two things in it this morning. The doubts within us and the assurance before us. So first, the doubts within us. Abram, the start of this passage, he's tired, he's stressed, maybe a little afraid. The people in the last chapter that he just beat in battle are going to come back and retaliate against him. But even more than that, there's a, a soul tiredness in Abram. This man has been obedient even when it cost him, and yet God's promises still haven't come through for him. If there ever was a man needing some reassurance, it's him. And so God comes to him in verse 1, and the word of the Lord says, Abram, do not be afraid. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. I mean, there is your Instagram verse right there, Abram. The God of the universe is your shield, your reward. Who wouldn't want that? Well, Abram, that's who. He says in verse 2, But sovereign Lord, what can you give me, since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus, meaning not his son, a slave, a servant who he's adopted. And Abram said, You've given me no children, so this servant of my household will have to be my heir. God promises... To tired, weary Abram, I will be your shield. And you know, a lesser person may have jumped on that and been satisfied with it, but not Abram. No, Abram says, whoa, 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 whoa. No, 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 that was not the original deal. I want you to do what you said you were going to do. I want you to give me a son through whom you and in your unceasing kindness will bless the world. That's the problem, the promise, that uh, Abram is clinging to. But here he is, 80 years old, still without a son, and that promise seems further off than ever. So in his passion to see God's promises fulfilled, he uh, starts to doubt. In his passion to see God's grace kiss the world, he starts to wonder, is it really going to happen? How can I know? I still don't have a son, God. 80 years old, right? Biologically, that ship has sailed. How can I know that you're going to come through for me? Now, do you realize how freeing those verses are? Because here you have Abram, who from the vantage point of the New Testament is the model of a faithful person. Here you have him doubting. And not just here in these verses, he'll do it again in verse 8. Meaning, if Abram never fully gets past his doubts, then we shouldn't expect to either. See, for as long as we live, we will always have doubts within us. Can I really be sure God made this world, everything in it? 
Jesus, did your miracles really happen the way that it says it does in the Bible? Is there really no condemnation for my sin in Christ? Can Jesus really be doing something for my good in this awful situation? Does God really love me as much as he says he does? Yeah, I I heard a retired pastor who said one of the hardest things in his entire career was convincing Christians that God is actually for them. And for some of us, it seems hard to admit these doubts. A very conservative, traditional take on Christianity will say doubt is bad, should be avoided, Uh, don't explore it, just stuff it down, really. You just got to have faith. Uh, And faith being this leap in the dark. You know, being a Christian means you take the leap and you don't ask questions. But is that how Abram's handling his doubt here? No, he's not stuffing it down. If anything, he's kind of protesting God with it. He's holding God by his own word there. He's saying, wait, wait, no, you said you were going to bless the world. I'm not settling for anything less than that, but I still don't have a son. So give me some reassurance, God. Abram doesn't stuff his doubts But God doesn't stuff his doubts down either. Verse 4, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to him again. This man, the servant that Abram was going to adopt, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is of your own flesh and blood. And then God took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars if you can. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. You see how God handles Abram's doubts? He doesn't reprimand him. He doesn't slap him on the wrist. He's not offended by them. He doesn't say, Abram, come on, I already told you. You just got to believe already. No, God in his grace invites Abram's doubts. In fact, it's one of the most beautiful pictures in all the Old Testament. God, like a a father putting his arm around his son, walks Abram out under the nighttime sky and says, look at the stars. Now, do you remember my word to you, Abram? That is how big your family will be. Your family that one day I am going to use to bless a sin-cursed world. See, God doesn't scold doubters. He invites them. And then he reassures them through his word. Now, maybe you're listening to this and thinking, this sounds nice, but isn't this whole conversation a little pointless? I mean, hasn't science, hasn't modern thought uh, proven that faith Faith is just naive fairy tales, you know, we tell ourselves to feel better. When in reality, the only thing we should be banking our lives on are things that can be proven. Things that that have evidence to them. Cold, hard truth. 
Uh, if, if belief is based on this blind leap in the dark and, and non-belief is based on proven truth, then, then who wouldn't? Who wouldn't want to anchor their life on what we know to be true versus something that's just a hope and a prayer? I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? Only, have you ever stopped to ask, in your understanding of reason, of empirical truth being the only thing to trust in, are you making a leap of faith somewhere too? You see, uh, to say if something can't be scientifically proven, it's not true and we shouldn't believe in it, uh, has some problems with it. A big one being that argument cannot be applied to other very important things in life. Here's one example of it. Look at the last couple of years and the push for racial equality and justice in our country. It has been good and right. But can you scientifically prove in a lab why racism should be eradicated? Is there empirical evidence for the ethics of why we should affirm the dignity of each and every person regardless of race, color, class, or creed? No. So we just throw it out the window? Absolutely not. But it is a leap of faith. It does require believing in something we can't empirically believe to be true. So why is it okay there and not elsewhere? Now, look, I'm not trying to pit science against faith. They're not enemies. They're companions. And, and faith is certainly not just warm, fuzzy feelings, void of any sort of evidence. I'm just trying to say that if we can take the leap, if we can believe in something like racial equality, which, which cannot be proven through a modern scientific method, then why not take the leap with something like Christianity as well? Why not be open to the possibility it may offer you a more true and desirable understanding of life? Because if we had more time to talk, I think you'd come to realize you're already taking a leap of faith in your unbelief. But a leap into what? Well, we all have doubts. We do. And the invitation of Genesis 15 is to do what Abram would, did with them. Not stuff them down, not repress them, but bring them to God and like Abram, find the assurance you need in God's word that he will do what he's promised to do in Jesus. So from the doubts within us to uh, second, the assurance before us. Uh, if, a, if a more conservative, traditional take on Christianity says doubt is bad, suppress it, stuff it down, then a, a more kind of liberal, modern, progressive approach is to say it's good, express it, value it. Uh, doubt is good, it means you're maturing. It means you're starting to have the courage to step out from this uh, life of naive faith into the reality of the world. It means you're not going to be duped anymore. Good. Doubt everything. Trust no one. But that's not what God's doing here either. You see, God invites 
Abram's doubts, but he doesn't leave him there. No, in his grace, he reassures Abram in his doubts in a way that this man never could have expected. Uh, In verse 9, God asks Abram to do something that to him made complete sense to us seems a bit odd. Uh, It says, the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove. So Abram brought these to him and cut them in two, arranged the halves opposite each other, and the birds he left complete, whole. Uh, This seems a little strange to us, but uh, we've got to remember, we all have kind of shorthand expressions, uh, uh, sayings, things that uh, if someone says to you, other people might not know, but you know exactly what they're talking about. For instance, if you're married and your wife is 39 weeks pregnant and you guys are sitting in your house and she suddenly looks up wide-eyed and yells to you, Get the bag! Are you going to go, what bag are you talking about? You never make any sense. I don't know what you're doing right now. No! You know exactly what she's talking about. And you know she's not just saying, get the bag. She's saying, the water has broken. Things are in motion. You got to get the bag. You got to get the car ready. You got to get the kids' babysitter. If you're like me, you got to make sure you got your stash of hospital junk food to bring with you. This baby is coming out now. We've all got little expressions, little phrases that we say to one another that we don't need to explain the whole thing. We just know what the person's talking about. Well, in verse 9, God tells Abram to do something that to us doesn't seem to make any sense, but to Abram makes complete sense. In fact, did you notice God doesn't even have to tell him what to do with the animals? Abram knows exactly what God wants him to do. Abram knows that God is going to make a covenant, an agreement with him. Uh, Jeremiah 34 tells us how in ancient times, when two people wanted to make a, a binding agreement, they would take an animal, they would split it down the middle, they would lie the halves open, and then they would walk through the middle of the pieces to act out the curse of breaking that covenant. In other words, to say, if if I fail to hold up my end of this covenant, may I be torn in two just like these animals. All right, so it sounded weird, but some of us are probably thinking right now, you know, I've got a coworker who I wouldn't mind making this sort of agreement with. You know, look, if we're going to be on this project together, you got to walk between these pieces, swear allegiance to me. And Abram is probably thinking right now, okay, I get it. I've doubted God, and uh, I know how this goes. He's going to make me cut these animals in two, swear my allegiance to him, and then walk between them as if to say, God, if I fail you again, if I doubt you again, may I be torn in two. May I be cut off from the land of the living. That's not what happens. Um, Verse 12, it says, As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. 
And when the sun had set, verse 17, and darkness had fallen, a smoking pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Now, the, the smoking pot, the blazing torch, what do those mean? Well, for the people that Moses is writing Genesis to, to the Israelites wandering around in the wilderness, they know exactly what this means. Remember how God's presence was manifested, was shown to Israel after the Exodus? Smoke and fire. And what do we have here in Genesis 15? Smoke and fire. It's God. And he is walking through the animals. He is taking the covenant curse on himself. Saying, if I don't fulfill my end of this covenant, may I be torn in two. May I be cut off from the land of the living. Now, this is, this is incredible. This is incredible that God would show this level of commitment to his promises. But is it that shocking? I mean, he, he is the all-powerful God of the universe. Is anybody expecting him to fail? No, it's not life-changing until we see who doesn't walk through the pieces. Abram. No, he is still stuck to the floor. God alone walks through the dead animals, meaning God is accepting all the costs to this covenant, all the responsibility for it. He assumes not only his curse, but Abram's curse, saying, if I fail, may I be torn in two, cut off from the land of the living, and Abram, if you fail, may I be torn in two and cut off from the land of the living. In other words, Abram, whether I fail or you fail, you will be blessed. Now, how can God say that? Abram will fail. Abram already has failed. It only makes sense when we see it in light of the day that Jesus in John 8 said Abram looked forward to, saw, and was glad. In Genesis 15, darkness fell over Abram. And in Mark 15, darkness came again and fell over Jesus as he hung on the cross where promise met reality. Where Jesus didn't say, I will be cursed, but he was cursed where he accepted all the cost, where he assumed all the responsibility, where we failed and God was torn in two, where Jesus was broken to bless you,
Because it's as he hung there on the cross, he by faith becomes the curse for us so that through him the blessing of Abram can fall on you. And when you see that, when you see the grace of the cross, it is the only thing that can truly give you confidence in your doubts. You see, moralism will tell you if it seems like God's not fulfilling his promises, it's your fault. You've done something wrong. And, and liberal, progressive thought will say if it seems like God isn't holding up his end of the bargain, if it seems like he's not doing what he said he'll do, it's God's fault. He's not going to come through. But when you see Genesis 15 fulfilled on the cross, you get all the reassurance you could ever need. Because it's there in the broken body and shed blood of Jesus that you see the cannot fail grace of God who said in the gospel, I'd rather be torn in two than let you fail to experience the goodness of everything I've promised for you. So what more reassurance could you need? What more confidence could you need of the dying commitment of God to not let one word of his promises ever go unfulfilled? How can we know? Jesus. He's how we can know. Let's pray. Father, our prayer is like the man with the dying son who met Jesus. I believe. Help my unbelief. Father, in this room of doubters, I pray this morning. And through your Holy Spirit, you would help us to see what Abram saw. To see Jesus hanging on the cross, where he was broken to bless us. And you would reassure us through this word, that in the gospel, not a single word of promise will fail. Amen.